Welcome to the Float Universe Podcast. There we go. And it's recording. And all this all this shit I'm saying right now, I will just cut out once I start talking, then I'll be this that <laughs> once I get going, that'll be in the episode. So here we go. Okay. This episode of the Float Universe Podcast is brought to you by the wonderful people at Capital Floats, located in beautiful Sacramento, California. Check out their float center and learn more about floating at capitalfloats.com. Tonight's guest is truly a jack of all trades in the wellness and self-improvement community. A social media maven whose content I always look forward to seeing. A Beachbody instructor, a psychedelic retreat leader, blogger, CBD expert, and co-founder of NorCal Trim Trap. She's as beautiful on the inside as she is on the outside. Please welcome the amazing Kelly Hanner. <laughs> Thank you, Garrett. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, I just wanted to say the reason I wanted to have you on as one of the first guests was... Um, in terms, and I talked about you talked about this before with you was, I had wanted to have this whole thing be about honesty and self confrontation, and that's what floating's kind of about facing yourself. And when I presented this to the initial guest, I had thought about basically people I wanted to repay the favor to. Um, not that I didn't admire you, not that I didn't have you on the on the radar, but a lot of those people weren't ready to confront themselves either in the tank or either in, this, mm -hmm. in, in an interview format, which I totally respect. And so that inspired me to reach out to you because you had floated before. And I think the main reason I admire you is um, I've never seen someone so honest and uh, open with everything in their life. And so that was the main reason. I mean, you even had it, I think, listed on your website as courageously forthright and honest um, in your mm -hmm. mind. So thank you for being here tonight. It's, a, it's, it's such an honor to have you. Um, I always enjoy your content. It's always uplifting, and it's very shocking sometimes, actually. So how are you doing tonight? <laughs> I'm doing pretty well. It's uh, pretty wild to hear about myself from somebody else's perspective. So <laughs> thank you for that. It's nice to hear all of that. It's, it's a compliment. Well, you're very welcome. Uh, I'm always just so blown away by how honest you are and it's very inspirational other people myself included uh, to see such a powerful woman be so open with her body be so open with the things she's going through um you, you talked about on your website you've conquered depression seasonal defect affective disorder shyness suicidal thoughts anorexia and bulimia severe <laughs> social anxiety drinking and i don't know this one here but it said an addiction to the enjoying the way ritalin smelled <laughs> yeah, I liked uh, Ritalin going up my nose a little too much. <laughs> oh, okay. I've never done Ritalin, but yeah. uh, that caught my attention there, the, the addiction to enjoying the way Ritalin smells. And so now I know what that means. Yeah. <laughs> I was joking around with that one. So there's a lot, there's a lot here to unpack with you. A um, little backstory. People obviously know um, I run the Float Universe account. I'm big into floating. The way I came across your content was obviously floating. I think it's been about a year and I've been following you and you have been one of the few people who have been uh, very vocal in spreading the message of the float, which is what I'm trying to do here. And so um, you're big on social media. You are, you're your self-proclaimed social media maven. And I would agree with that. 
Um, I went and looked at your social media today. You've got 31,000 followers on Instagram, um, combined 14,000 followers on Facebook. YouTube, you're around 2,700 followers, and a lot of your videos have over 1,000 views. Uh, the website is kellymhanner.com, and uh, I'm interested to hear about your story um, in, in two ways. Uh, the, 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 the body being built up and, and your, your self-image and that kind of change, and there was also another one, which was um, you, you went through a relationship from what all the interviews I was reading and the things you were talking about that you were in a previous relationship of nine years, which I found interesting because not, in numerology, nine is like a completion number. And it's like you just—it's like you discarded your old self, and uh, you went on this epic journey, and you found your current partner, who you have all these other things that you've gone through. I guess in the past year and a half, two years with. So I'm just interested to hear about how you went from the caterpillar to the butterfly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so my story basically starts where, you know, I grew up in a household where my mother was very self-conscious. She cared a little too much about what everybody thought of her. And she also struggled with weight issues as well. And so growing up with that, watching that, I myself in turn ended up struggling as well. Because when my mom was on a diet, the whole house was on a diet. And in fact, you know, like back in the 1990s, diet food was shit. I mean, people were eating Nutrisystems and signing up for Jenny Craig and eating weight or um, attending Weight Watchers meetings and all that kind of stuff. So being around that, seeing my mom struggle with that, I in turn ended up struggling with my weight as well. So, I mean, I had anorexia in the eighth grade and then going from... I think my senior year of high school, throughout most of my college years, I was bulimic as well. So I just, I struggled with, I was shy. I was overly concerned with what people thought about me. I didn't really have my own personality, my own sense of self, because in my household, I was raised where if you didn't make your my mother happy, she pretty much would disown you. So I learned the hard way that I couldn't really be myself around my mother. So combine that with the eating disorder stuff. And I was just a really lost human being. I had no real identity, uh, no true sense of self. Um, I ended up getting into Beachbody. Uh, Beachbody, if anybody isn't familiar with it, it's a multi-level marketing company, which it always gets a bad rap as a pyramid scheme, but I am somebody who ended up being very successful with quote-unquote pyramid schemes. And so Beachbody is just, they deliver um, workout programs that you can do from the comfort of your own home, and they provide different meal plans and things to help people be successful without spending an arm and a leg by going to the gym or what have you. And I ended up being really successful with losing weight for the first time. Uh, losing weight in a way in which I wasn't doomed to just pack it back on. Uh, so with Beachbody, I lost 20 pounds and 20 inches. And I also at the time was going to college and I had no idea what I wanted to do. 
in college. Uh, I started with nutrition. I got an associate's degree in that, but my associate's degree in nutrition was largely funded by lobbyists. It's it's quite apparent now when I look back at it. They were pushing all kinds of really stupid ideas on what nutrition and health was. So from there, from getting the associate's degree, I went on to try to pursue a bachelor's degree. And I was just lost in the sauce, though. I I wanted to save the tigers, save the whales, and all that kind of stuff. So I went to school for environmental science after the nutrition degree. And I, I didn't want to be there. Growing up, I always hated school. I always felt odd being in school. I couldn't really understand why we were being taught some of the things we were being taught because it just didn't seem to, you know, it didn't seem like lifelong skills that would ever serve me in the real world. Um, so here I was trying to pursue a bachelor's degree in environmental science. And in the meantime, I was also a beach body coach. And I wasn't really doing much of anything with it, but I saw other people from my area who had become Beachbody coaches having success with it. So, you know, they were going on trips, they were paying off debt, they were living a really awesome life, they were growing and becoming incredible human beings. And I finally looked at it and I was like, look, either I continue to fake it until I make it with college. I mean, I pretty much from my seventh grade year all the way up till my college profession or college career, I cheated my way through school because I just wanted nothing to do with it. And I was somebody who was a C or D student at best. And if I hadn't cheated my way through school, I would have never gotten to where I was. And I was looking at like, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. I'm not involved. I'm not passionate about what I'm learning about. I'm learning about plate tectonics. And while that's great and all, I just don't understand how this is going to help me to, you know, help the environment. So I looked at it as, okay, I could sit here and continue to cheat and not know what the hell I was doing and just fake it and basically end up graduating, but really not even having a passion in what I was doing because I would probably be directed to a career I wouldn't even really appreciate or enjoy or be passionate about. And I just decided to drop out of college and pour myself into my Beachbody career. And what ended up happening is, is Beachbody, I totally respect Beachbody because they promote self-growth in the terms of doing a lot of personal development, reading books, watching podcasts, listening to podcasts, just doing whatever you can to try to break the mental programming that most of us have endured through school and social media and the news and television and all of that. So through my career as a Beachbody coach, it helped me to grow into this really strong, independent woman who was no longer shy and afraid to speak in front of crowds and who finally understood her, her worth. Um, so, yeah, so thanks to Beachbody, I mean, it helped me to lose weight, helped me to become a better, stronger individual. And then I also had financial success as well. Well, it's finally interesting to actually talk to someone who has. Uh, I've always wondered about Beachbody myself. Uh, I've always heard about it, uh, but I've never. I didn't actually know it was a multi-level marketing thing, and that's been interesting to learn mm -hmm. with you. And so that makes a lot of sense to me. I was kept. Well, I look at your videos, but I didn't get to watch them all. 
and I'm looking at some of these, and it's like the diamond level, and I, and I'm like, that's that sounds like a uh, MLM term, and yeah. uh, and and you you definitely have to have this, this certain personality, both as a salesman, but both as putting out the actual results to be success successful as an MLM, but also as an MLM that's depending on motivating people and working with your body. So you you are definitely the real deal when it comes to those things. Yeah, and and as I mentioned, you know, the woman I am today. Um, I wouldn't be that person without Beachbody. And it does take a certain level of person to do something like an MLM because you get rejected a lot. And if you are starting off as somebody who has a really thin skin and you really count on what people think of you and, you know, your reputation rides and dies on what other people's thoughts are. Um, you're not going to have a lot of success with this. And yeah. that's who I was starting off. You know, I yeah. cared a lot about what people thought. So it took a lot of reprogramming for me to become somebody who was comfortable with rejection. You, you, to me, I truly believe you have to embody something to be able to transmit it to another person in terms of a teaching or in your case, um, like the workout ethic, the motivation, the hustle, the, the the willingness to change, and it's you know every bit of your life is an expression of that, uh, including like the jump to quit college. Uh, I've done that myself. I quit law school halfway through, but only because I hated it, and not going to school mm -hmm. was less painful than going to school for me. But in your case, <laughs> you you're 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 one of those people that always intrigue me because you prove that the universe is always there to catch you, and if you're not living in some kind of fear-based reality, like you're always experiencing mm -hmm. that in another being. And I always I found that interesting with your your international travel, and uh, mm -hmm. like I, I was looking at your seven um, like your seven travel tips in your PDF there, and I'm seeing you with like Indian people. And just like getting your eye, your eyebrows done, and and drinking some weird drink, like wow, like this this woman's got a lot of trust in the universe here to to a to step out as a woman. I, and I don't know how much that you spent alone. I'm assuming maybe Max was with you some of that. Like th that's what I want to hear about next is you quitting school, traveling the world, and then I guess at some point you met Max along the way. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we met while traveling. Um, so yeah, I ended up dropping out of school. I poured myself into Beachbody and for about like four or five years, I did the whole Beachbody thing gung-ho and I was in a relationship. I eventually, through everything that I was learning through personal development and all the ways that I was growing, I finally realized that I was not who I was really meant to be in this nine-year relationship. I realized that I was kind of being held back. And I was also, I grew up and was raised in Toledo, Ohio. And Toledo, Ohio has a different frequency, let me tell you. <laughs> it's, it can really choke you out. Um, and I just realized that where I was, it was kind of stunting my growth even more. So I got out of the relationship. For the first time in my life, I packed my bags and I moved down to Delray Beach, Florida, which is over a thousand miles from home. I didn't know anybody there except for like one person from Beachbody. But um, so I ended up living on my own for the first time ever in my entire life at the age of like 27. And oh, well, so I was living on, down let, there. Let me stop you there. Let me stop oh. you there. So two things I, I, I'm, I'm hearing from this. So actually three things. So you're 27, yeah. two, plus, two plus seven, that's a, that's a nine year. That's another like, you know, like yeah, you know, know. Into, the, into the cycle. And then also I believe at the end of the cycle, 
um, we step into uh, a lot of times we're, we're forced to step into courage, and which is kind of what you did by making that leap from Ohio to Florida alone into a new, basically a new dimension of being. So um, it's interesting to see when you look at someone's life, uh, looking back at with like 2020, if you believe in certain things like numerology, how actually, mm -hmm. yes, you know, they've reached a nine point. They've uh, reached, I truly believe that uh, change begins at the level of courage. And I don't know what happened in that relationship, but I don't know if it was your conscious choice to leave or things got so bad that you didn't have a choice. But regardless, uh, that cycle had ended and you were forced or you chose to step into courage and move to Florida. So sorry to interrupt, but I just wanted to. to <coughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's funny because I was born on um, February 7th. So that's a two and a seven there. So um yeah, nine kind of follows me around. <laughs> Nine, nine's kind of all over the place in my life. Um, but anyway, yeah, so I ended up moving down to Florida, and I had the absolute time of my life being a strong, independent woman. Um, you know, I, I stepped into my own. I started paddleboarding. I started just... Uh, snorkeling and free diving all the time. I was just living an absolutely incredible existence that, you know, back when, when I was a bulimic and I had a lot of stress and anxiety and I had suicidal th thoughts and ideations, I never would have imagined in my entire life that I would have become the person I was and, and am right now today. Because, uh, I mean, I I envision myself dying quite a few times. So it's quite amazing to see where I am and, and the steps that have helped me to get to the woman that I have become. But anyway, so um, my lease ended up uh, running out down in Florida and it was the high season. So I could either pay about three times more in rent to continue living where I was, or I just decided, you know what, maybe I could travel. So I decided to start traveling. I got rid of most of what I owned, which wasn't really that much, but I got rid of most of what I owned and I set out for Thailand for my first solo trip. Um, and so I traveled Thailand. I was in there. I was there for about 17 days all on my own. I've met people from all over the world. I volunteered in Chiang Mai, Thailand at an elephant nature park, uh, sanctuary for elephants. Uh, I went to a ping pong show, which I don't know if you know what a ping pong show is, but that was absolutely life changing in, in a really show? weird way. So um, ping pong show. So what this is, is I, I didn't realize this at the time, but there is off, there's really um, a lot of human trafficking in Thailand. As I said, I didn't know I was naive walking into this. And I was in Thailand on New Year's Eve and I was staying at a hostel and we decided to go to a ping pong show after the ball dropped. So we attended a ping pong show and I had an idea of what a ping pong show was. I thought it was kind of going to be like just like some horse kind of like show you hear about in Tijuana where women are essentially spinning out ping pong balls from their vagina. <laughs> um, but... I didn't know that. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, um, it ended up being a lot more seedy than that. Um, 
I mean, you could see these women, these poor Thai women would come out on stage and this place was so seedy and so disgusting. They would not let you whip out a cell phone. Uh, if they saw you whip out a cell phone, they would kick you out. Um, but these women would walk up on stage and perform these weird things with ping pongs. And then the straw that broke the camel's back for me when I was like, what the hell am I really doing here? Is when a Thai woman and a Thai man walked out on stage and I saw he had a condom on and I was like, whoa, what's going on here? And then they engaged in the most lifeless sex I've ever seen. They just, their souls looked vacant from their eyes. They didn't look like they were there whatsoever. And after that, I was like, all right, we're getting the hell out of here. Um, and that changed me in a way because I just, I didn't realize how disgusting life could actually be. I, I didn't realize that that could actually exist. And then I went on to learn that all of these poor people, really, they're just moving through the human trafficking system. They start out young and they're being pimped out. And then from there, they some of them graduate to ping pong shows. It's just, it's a really... It, it helps you make me more passionate about human trafficking and sex work. Yeah, I mean, human trafficking is probably the worst thing you can imagine. And uh, from what I've read about Thailand, I've never been there, but it's, I, I think it's one of the sex capitals of the world in terms of sex tourism. So it's, re it's a really sad place where you find British and American men, um, you know, surfing for sex tourism and all kinds of I didn't even know what a ping pong show was until the night, so that, that's <laughs> yeah. a new one. That's uh, that's unfortunate. So you're in Thailand, and uh, so who are you? You were you were with friends, right? You weren't with Max yet. No, I wasn't with Max yet. I was by myself. So I boarded this plane on my own. I I made decisions on my own. I only met people on the way. So I met people who were also traveling. So, you know, I met an Australian guy, I met a woman from Denmark, people from all over the place. Yeah. And, you know, when I, when I first booked this ticket and I made an announcement like, hey guys, I'm, you know, I'm going to Thailand on my own. So many people were, you know, fearful for my safety. Um, you know, right. what's going to happen too. to you yeah. over there. Right, right. And you know, there, there's legitimate concern for that. But I'll tell you what, I've traveled all over. And I've been in more fear for my life in America than I have anywhere else. <laughs> well, see, that's what I've always admired about you and people like you. I've never I've lived in Japan and I've traveled foreign for my job, but I've never gone out basically writing the whim of the universe, which is what you did. And how did you support yourself while you were traveling the world? Did you have money saved up or did you have uh, a way to make money while you were traveling? Yeah, so good question. Um, during this time, I was, I currently am still a Beachbody coach, um, but I just don't really put a lot of focus there because I have other side works that have become my main uh, sole focus. So during this time, I was still kind of, you know, had my eye on the prize with Beachbody. Um, but largely, I've been using Beachbody ever since I started traveling as just residual income. So Beachbody just pays mon money to my bank, and I haven't really lifted a finger in like three years. So being at the top of the MLM pyramid is the gift that keeps on giving. 
Definitely. And the thing is, is I'm not even at the top. <laughs> There's, a, you know, like a lot of people look at MLMs and, oh, it's a pyramid and it's a scheme. And, you know, <laughs> the people at the top and nobody makes money like the people at the top do. Well, in order to be successful at MLMs, you have to have a team that's successful under you, especially if you want long term wealth and if you want good residual income that lasts for a while. Um, so, you know, the real scheme really is corporate America. That's the real pyramid. And I think people have been, been bamboozled to think that it's really, you know, this network marketing thing because they heard of their Aunt Sally who started with Amway back in the 1980s and ended up with a garage full of toilet paper. Like, yeah, that can happen, but... You know, a lot of people, what happens when they get into MLMs is they don't have success because, as I mentioned, you know, you have to have a tough or a thick skin because you get rejected a lot. And for a lot of people, that's a blow to their confidence. And most people's confidence, unfortunately, is already pretty shattered. So, you know, you have a couple of people tell you no twice and that can send people off until, oh, fuck, network marketing, it doesn't work. But really, if if you can keep your eye on the prize, it does. So thanks to network marketing, I, I don't want to beat the horse here, but um, I wouldn't have had as awesome of a life as I've had and had the opportunity to travel if it wasn't for, you know, Beachbody. Well, I mean, you've, you've totally earned it. I've, I looked at the videos, and it takes a, a certain amount of courage to put yourself on the Internet, especially with your body, especially with the way you put yourself out there, um, to basically avail yourself to men and women who may not be on the same level of confidence with their body or self-love. And so I'm always – that's one of those things that I'm just so – I find so powerful about you is whether it's a picture of yourself in front of a float tank or it's your videos – you're very confrontational in a loving way, and I, I just adore that about you. Um, and, and kind of switching gears here, I wasn't going to get into the float stuff so early, but it just seems like we're going down that road. Um, mm -hmm. So you post pictures all the time with yourself in front of the float tank, and a lot of you're one of the few women that will basically, without showing what can't be shown, you will basically give us a full nude. And one of the most interesting that's recently happened, in the, like it was last month, was you were you were getting into a float tank you had a towel around your waist and it was just like your backside and an implied nudity of the front it was nothing i mean nothing really i mean you've done much more you know scandalous relatively speaking things and so what i found funny was it was it, it, was, it wasn't really funny it was kind of sad but um like i said it was you in front of a float tank and the initial comment was and this was his comment it said man if only she and many others could tell their float story without accompanying it with a thirst trap photo, are non-model normies allowed in float centers anymore? And for people who are listening that doesn't know what a thirst trap is, it's basically a picture of a beautiful woman, um, semi-scandalous, meaning a thirst trap because it's attracting thirsty men, men who are uh, you know searching the internet for those things, follows accounts like that, looking for you know pictures of women that are half naked or suggestive. That's what a, in my experience, that's what a thirst trap is. It's basically a woman who may or may not try to get attention by putting herself out there, but does nonetheless and attracts men like that. And so I said, you know, next time I'll post a naked guy. But your comment was uh, back to the person that said, stop sexualizing women's bodies just because you popped a woody doesn't mean I am thirsty. <laughs> so I, yeah. thought that was, I thought that was powerful. 
And then the, the best part was you take this to Facebook and your Facebook is actually more interesting sometimes than your Instagram because I think you're interacting with a lot more, a lot more people on a more personal level and uh, your, your comments are longer and your reach is a little mm -hmm. different. So you, you had uh, made a quote, you were talking about, here's the quote again, to the guy who thought I was thirsty for uploading a picture of just my naked back while entering a, into a float tank, just because I have finally found confidence with my body and am comfortable with sharing my divine meat vehicle doesn't make me or any woman, for that matter, thirsty. Stop sexualizing our bodies. And you go on about that. And then what I found even more interesting was then somebody had taken that comment, and I guess they had reposted that into a bigger, um, I guess, some kind of bigger forum. And you were taking on the heat of... And here's the comment from this one. You, then you replied to that saying, the post I shared yesterday in response to someone calling me thirsty got shared to a pretty large Facebook page. My skin is pretty thick, but not thick enough for some of the comments my post received from some of these complete strangers. But I'm letting it slide off my back. And so um, that's what I'm always impressed with you is you love yourself enough where you don't let these trolls ultimately get to you. And uh, you're just letting – you show us the, these people who, for who they really are without you expressing back with hate or going at them like you don't feed the trolls which i find beautiful about you what's the story from going from like anorexia and bulimia and growing up i guess in a, in a household that was tough to deal with those things to being super comfortable with your body putting it out there and then being able to love and be able to deflect a lot of these nasty things like how do you get from a to b yeah um I mean, it's definitely not easy. Um, I'll tell you that much. Uh, but you get there by just putting one step, one foot in front of the other. Um, you find ways to get more comfortable with yourself. Um, for me, that looked like traveling. Traveling helped me because uh, when you go to different countries and you see the way different cultures interact with one another and, and you see cultural norms and, and what they frown upon and what they smile about. Um, it really, it, it really just shows you that it's just, it's, it's just these weird social constructs that we have that we've wrapped around ourselves that tell us one thing is good and one thing is bad when, you know, like for instance, here in the U S most men are circumcised. And when I was traveling, I happen to learn from a lot of people. They're like, oh, you guys are the absolute um, minority here. Most of us are, are not circumcised. You know, we're fully intact. So, you know, a lot of what we think is right here in America may be, quote unquote, right for us, but it's not the case for the rest of the world. So, you know, going to different countries and learning the way they feel about body and the way they feel about personal touch, like when we were in Nepal, Max and I, I started to notice that there were men who were walking around and holding each other's hands. They, if they were looking at, let's say one person out of the group had a cell phone, one man out of a group had a cell phone, well, all the other men would be scrounged up next to him, super close, looking at his cell phone. And, you know, they didn't seem to care about, you know, keeping um, somebody's personal bubble safe. They were all just, like, close on top of another man. And so you see this, and I'm like, what the hell? You know, are they, do they have a gay culture here, or, or what's, the, what's the deal? 
because uh, I wasn't seeing like rainbows, you know, some symbolism anywhere for the gay culture or, you know, right. and uh, what I, <laughs> what I ended up learning was, is that the men don't really interact a lot with women. And so they crave touch, they crave connection. And so men just casually hold hands or hug each other or wrap arms around one another and walk down the street like it's no big deal. And you do that here, you do that in like somewhere like Texas and you're looked at like a homo, right? They're going to call you a homo and they're going to think that you're just something else. But, you know, it's 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 not the case. And so it, it's crazy when you see the way other areas of the world handle it. So combine my travels showing me like different, different ways in which cultures express love, uh, handle nudity, and then combine that with uh, doing plant medicine, you know, entheogens. So uh, mushrooms have been really big in helping me to become more comfortable with my body. Um, I, during my solo, so when I was with my ex of almost nine years, he didn't ever want me to do mushrooms. And I had done them before recreationally and very irresponsibly before I had met him. And I had good times. I've also had bad trips then, but I had a nine year break of not doing any mushrooms. And then once I started traveling, I had, ex, you know, exposure to mushrooms and I started taking mushrooms, uh, especially while being alone and being alone in front of a mirror when you're a woman who has lived most of her life as her own worst enemy and absolutely hating her body. Um, when you have the opportunity to do mushrooms in a more ceremonial setting where it's intentional and it means something to you, you can really start to unravel all of your body shame and all of your hatred and everything. And it allows you to start to see like, what the hell am I worried about here? Like I have legs that can get me around. I have lungs that help me to breathe. I'm not ugly. Like, what am I, what am what am I screwed up about? Like I'm a good person and, and my personality and my heart and my soul is what I should really be concerned about. Why am I so hung up about my looks when it should be like the, the content of my character that I should be most concerned with. And so mushrooms big time have helped me to become more confident in myself. Excellent. You know, um, I always have one of the things the mushrooms actually taught me about uh, what I was attracting in terms of my self hate was one time the mushroom told me you're attracting outwardly in a partner in the physical manifestation um, the the way you feel about yourself inwardly and mm -hmm. uh, I, I felt that was very but it was a big eye opener for me um, but then I started to look at people's relationships and I'm like wow I'm like this is how such an uh, uh, an objectively attractive woman. Um, and I'm not judging by a very harsh standard here. Just like a, just a beautiful woman inside and out can attract such a demon um, mm -hmm. in terms of a partner because you, this guy would never be able to get this woman had this woman not held some kind of uh, shame or self-hate towards herself. And so she's only attracting that partner that's mirroring her internal uh, self-worthlessness. And so, yeah, the mushroom has been powerful in terms of – because I've, I've also um, – suffered kind of the same issues in terms of self-image and body dysmorphia. I'm six foot five. I've always been skinny. I've always been tall. Even when I was in first grade, they were like, are you supposed to be in the 
wait, when I was in kindergarten, they're like, are you supposed to be in the first grade line, the second grade line? Are you, are you sure you're in the right <laughs> line? Because I've always been tall, always been skinny. <laughs> so I've always had those issues as well. And uh, the mushroom has shown me, and acid has too, a lot of things about uh, how I perceive myself. And because I'm perceiving myself a certain way, I'm attracting those things outwardly in other people. So uh, totally. I, to- yeah, I totally agree with you there. And since we're on the uh, topic of mushrooms, what your second highest viewed video on YouTube was actually about microdosing. And uh, mm-hmm. I'm, uh, I'd like to hear your opinion on microdosing because I'm a proponent of micro- microdosing mushrooms, but I'm, I don't know if I'm a proponent of microdosing LSD. So I know um, I've watched your videos and I'd like for you to talk about what your experience is with microdosing and uh, what you do with it, how you do it, um, and what you get from it. Yeah. Uh, microdosing has been great for me. Uh, I, when I first began microdosing, I've never microdosed acid, only have done mushrooms. Um, but when I first started, I would take about, I think, 0.3 grams, uh, just about, so a little under 0.5. So I'd take 0.3 grams and I would set an intention. I would make it very intentional. So I would, one of the reasons why I started doing uh, microdosing was because, you know, while I would like to think I'm so far from who I used to be in terms of like being depressed and having anxiety issues, you know, that kind of shit does creep up still. So I used mushrooms as a way to try to heal it. And I think not necessarily heal it, but try to transform all of that anxiety into something different. So I had heard about it, I think, from Hamilton Morris, some kind of vice piece he did. And so I was, you know, I took half or 0.5 grams and I say a little intention of something like, you know, I'm going to partake in this and this is going to provide me with clarity. It's going to free my mind and allow me to feel more happy about myself. So I'll address it with some kind of intention, take the microdose, and then what I basically tell people um, what microdosing is like, it's like, you know, all of a sudden you're like, oh, so this is what happiness feels like. This is what contentment feels like when your mind isn't racing a hundred minutes a mile or a hundred miles a minute. And you just feel like, oh, okay, things are cool. Like this is what it's like to not feel stressed and to not just be so anxious about your life and continually running through the what ifs that go through your head. Um, so microdosing, uh, when I first got started, I would do it about every three days, uh, just because it was just the momentum that I needed to have in my life to kind of get me off from the roller coaster of feeling like crap and of feeling anxious. So I was doing that. Um, but now I kind of just microdose whenever I feel like it, um, which is probably maybe once or twice a month, but once or twice is really all it takes for me because after that, I'm like, wow, yeah, this, this feels great and it lasts for a while. So I don't really need to do anything more than that. Okay. So you, you've never done LSD before in terms of the microdose. And what I'll say on that is, um, my stance on microdosing is, um, I did a, six months uh, on and off with mushrooms 
and then I did six months on and off with LSD. What I'll say about mushrooms are I basically give it the okay because it's natural, and I'm on the fence mm -hmm. with microdosing LSD because we don't know. It's eighty. It's only been eighty years since we've known about LSD, and uh, mushrooms we've known about them for five thousand plus years, and that goes back to Terence McKenna and talking about doing only natural psychedelics as opposed to doing mm -hmm. um, you know stuff made in the lab because with MDMA you don't you definitely don't want to microdose MDMA, but uh, <laughs> everything I've read on that has been just bad, bad, bad news. It's it just so mm. it just depletes you so much and so fast. You just can't do it every couple of days. But LSD, right. we don't have enough information in terms of what it's going to do to us doing it for a long period of time. Let alone doing large doses. Again, we only have eighty years of knowledge. So um, I don't recommend people do microdosing LSD. Also, another thing that happens to me when I microdose LSD is my my reality starts to get really weird. Um, <laughs> what I'll say about psychedelics in general is the less work you have to work through, the, the more clear your ego is relative to the oneness, the more effect I think it has on the overall reality, which is why, um, going into an ayahuasca ceremony or doing any kind of psychedelic, if there's like a, like a relative denseness, meaning you have food, like you've eaten a bunch of nasty, heavy food, you have issues to work mm -hmm. through. You have um, all kinds of, these are layers, and relative to the amount of layers you're working through is how potent the experience will be. Um, now, mushrooms have also told me specifically, um, when I took a small amount, I said, why is it so powerful? And then sometimes I've taken five grams and nothing's happened. And the, the spirit of the mushroom actually told me, it's like, we control what's going to happen. We control the lesson. And uh, so it's basically those two things, what the mushroom wants to tell you, and it's relative to how many layers you have. Um, and so that's why I don't do LSD in terms of microdosing, because I'm, my mind is so free in terms of where my beliefs can take it that it can bend my reality too much, and it becomes too weird, even on a microdose. So um, I, <laughs> yeah. don't, I don't recommend doing that to anyone, um, but that's cool. And I was actually, it was good to watch your video. Your, your three highest videos were actually... The, the first one was actually a parasite cleanse. 80, you had 80,000 80, views on that one. The second one was the microdosing mushrooms, 53,000 views. And then third was, actually, I thought it would be the most, would be your Ibogaine and Ayahuasca. So before we switch gears, um, I wanted to ask you a few more questions about mushrooms. Uh, what, what has been, are, are you a big, uh, are, you, are you in favor of doing large doses? What's your largest dose you've done? What are your takeaway in general from the mushroom in terms of taking the large doses? What have you learned? Uh, yeah, so I have done large doses. The last large dose I did was about two months ago. I don't do those as frequently. The most I sometimes do will be about one to two grams. Uh, this last time I did, I think it was five grams. Uh, for me, I just, you know, it, it's something that I do with respect. Um, whereas when I was younger and I would experiment with mushrooms, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And I would do them at house parties and it would be loud and there wouldn't be any time to really have that inner, that, that space where you could dive into your inner self and really learn about yourself. And so now, um, you know, all I really want or need is one or two grams if I was going to do um, a bigger dose than a microdose. And that's just because it, it, there's a lot of self-work that goes on if you're doing it with that kind of intention. And that's pretty much the only way I really do mushrooms. And so 
that's just something you don't want to revisit quite often because sometimes it can take a lot to process and integrate it into your real life. Just in the same way, like, uh, the one time I did DMT and I blasted off, I'm good for a while. And that was about two years ago. And I'm still good because I'm still processing that. And I know what another DMT experience could possibly look like. And I just don't need that again right now. So with the mushrooms, um, taking a larger dose of mushrooms uh, is just... <sighs> If you're ready for it, it can really provide an incredible opportunity to really, like, as you mentioned, the layers. You can peel back the layers of yourself, the layers that no longer serve you and are holding you back. And right. that's, yeah, and, and that's a really important and powerful thing. And that's just something you don't want to do every weekend. So, you know, for me, I... What I would like to do, though, is I would like to make it a monthly thing where I am doing somewhere between one to three grams, I think, of mushrooms, and I'm doing it around the full moon. And it's just a way for me to really have a sacrament where I'm honoring myself, I'm further helping myself to understand myself, but I'm also connecting with nature because I feel that that's a strong uh, thing for me. Uh, when I'm doing mushrooms, I like to be outside. I'm not like sitting on the couch watching TV. I'm, I'm really immersed in nature and I have a deep appreciation for the trees around me that are breathing, the, the clouds in the sky that are moving. <laughs> you know, it's, it's interesting that you brought up DMT because in all the research I've done and as long as I've known you, I've never heard you talk about DMT. So let me ask you, mm -hmm. Did DMT find you, or you, or did you seek DMT? Uh, DMT kind of, uh, I it came to me very randomly through a friend, a very close friend who just happened to learn how to make it. <laughs> okay, so you weren't you weren't out there like with the feelers out saying, "Oh, I got to find some DMT. I want to try DMT." Because I usually run into all kinds of people that are like, "Oh man, can you get me DMT or how do I get DMT or there's no DMT <laughs> in my town?" And what I'm telling people is, "Look, um they're all spirits. I think all psychedelics are basically each one is a fingertip or finger of of the hand of God, you know, LSD, yes. psilocybin, DMT, especially the plant derivative. Well, they're all ultimately plant derivative, but especially the ones that are plants like marijuana, uh, mushrooms, like those are closer to the hand of God. We haven't contaminated it with our chemistry. Not that, I mean, that's a judgment, but one thing I'll also say about judging these things is the less I judge them, the more they've come to help me. Because um, yes. in, in, the, in the beginning, I was, uh, you know, just say no to drugs and I, mm -hmm. I was w working against what society thought and what maybe my parents might have thought. Um, but they've been the most healing things. And so I'm still, you know, singing their praises, even though I know. I maybe not even need any of these things at a certain point going forward, um, but I still right. like to hold, I like to hold this space for people. So it's interesting that actually DMT found you. So uh, did you smoke it? How was the? How did you take it? So I had tried uh, the friend who was making the DMT. They had a plentiful supply of it, so I had tried it here and there, trying to blast off, quote unquote. Um, and I just couldn't manage manage to do it no matter how we tried to smoke it. So eventually we ended up watching a video on YouTube where it's not exactly the most uh, eco-friendly and healthiest way to do it. But we ended up taking like a two liter plastic bottle, 
cutting the bottom off of the bottle and then putting DMT onto a piece of aluminum foil and then putting that, like applying that to the bottom of the two liter bottle. If Are you following that so far? Yeah. Okay. And then, so what you would do is you have the cap still on the bottle. You take a lighter and you start to light the foil and the DMT. And then your two liter bottle becomes filled with smoke or, or you know, vapor. And you just unscrew the lid and then <laughs> you, go, <laughs> you go to outer space. <laughs> so basically it was just one hit for you. You, you tried the, have you tried the three hit method? Uh, so I, I actually, I, I had two hits and my boyfriend was helping me to uh, blast off. And so he was holding the two liter bottle and I was taking hits off from it. And he tried to get me to take a third hit. And by the time I went to try to take a third hit, uh, I was looking at his hand, and his hand just started to turn into a fractal. And right. from there, I just laid, <laughs> I laid backwards and let it happen. Yeah, that was the secret. There is that third hit is at that point is crucial because that's happened to me before. I was actually scared, and my experience I've done it about five times. And this this experience I'm going to talk about is I had taken I, I had smoked weed. Uh, about an hour before, not knowing that DMT was going to be available, just my normal day. Mm -hmm. And this was a this was about uh, a year ago when I was just getting into the thick of like smoking concentrates all the time, and and just being my soul was saturated with THC. And I was actually actually <laughs> trying to find balance with it, work with it. Um, I was in a very dark place with marijuana, and so um, the DMT had actually come after the fact to serve me and show me something. But what happened was, um, I took the second hit. And so basically the methodology is you take three hits and by the second hit that uh, the, the mandala should start to appear. The fractals, you'll, you'll, they'll start to appear. And then if, mm -hmm. you take the, if you take the third hit, you'll blast on through. Most of the times, a lot of the times the DMT gatekeeper will actually keep you out. Um, and there's nothing you can do about that. I've heard that many times and it's happened to me as well. It's literally told me, it's like, you've done it successfully, but you're not coming through this time. You've got things to work on before you can come through. But Back to this this time where I was I was in this fear state because I don't know about you but a lot of times at, once you've done DMT a few times you, you know what you know what to expect to a degree and it's scary as shit yeah, yeah. and so marijuana <laughs> had, had then made me scared and paranoid and basically you're getting um, that kind of like reflected back to you in terms of the experience like that is kind of the energy that powers the experience so if you're in a loving state or a fear state that's kind of the DMT realm you're going to go into and so on the second right. hit the second hit I was uh, the, the the mandala started to appear but it was like this grotty nasty portal with like nasty stuff coming out and like hands trying to grab me and I was actually oh. in I was in tears and uh, I waited just long enough I think like you I did take the third hit, but just long enough where I didn't get the full blast off, but I still went into this realm where, so the metaphor was, I was like this baby, and I was in the year, I was in this operating room from the year 3000, some, something in the like super future, and I was, a I was a baby, but I had green coming out of every orifice, my mouth, my ears, my nose, my butt, everything that could be, something could come out of. <laughs> 
green was coming out of it. And so basically I'm able to read the metaphor as I'm just, just like, that's me. I'm this, this new being trying to be reborn, but I'm being choked to death by all the weed I was smoking at the time. So as much as it didn't go the way I wanted it to, I got what I needed out of it. So it still served me. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm always telling people, even the bad trips can be powerful and you learn things like they're trying to teach you something, whether they kick, kick you out or drag right. you into, drag you into hell. And so, um, I'm sure you're like me now where you have so much respect for it so much, you know, I mean, and it's, it's total ego dissolution. I mean, so when you did break through, if you can remember anything about it, if, if there was any takeaways from you, what were there? Uh, for me, I actually, I started crying as well, but mine were happy tears and the people I had done it around, they were concerned. I, I was crying the entire time, uh, but my tears were, like I said, they were happy. I ended up blasting off to this place where there was no, there was no time. There was, there was nothing. It was just kind of, it, it was a knowingness. There was nothing there aside from me and this feeling that everything was going to be okay, that everything was going to work out, that uh, I was safe. And essentially I started crying just because I didn't want to leave that place. I wanted to stay there. (laughs) I didn't want to, you know, I mean, hell, this reality can be pretty tough. There's a lot of crazy shit going on every single day. And to be somewhere where it felt like, you know, there was just utter peace and, and contentment and quietness and, and this knowing aspect where, you know, you don't really have to know it all because you just are, you just, you are and therefore everything else is like, there, there's just nothing else to really contemplate. And, um, yeah, that was, it was, it was tough to come out of that because it was just a really beautiful feeling of, wow, this is just, this maybe is what is lying uh, for us when we die. You know, this is maybe what the uh, other side looks like where we all go, um, you know, when we pass away. And so for me, it was just this kind of confirmation that there isn't necessarily a heaven or a hell. There just is this space and this, this place you go where it's just, it feels right. It feels right. And it feels good. (laughs) If that makes any sense. DMT is really hard to explain to other people. (laughs) Totally does. Now, let me ask you this. Going into that, what was your state of being uh, at your baseline consciousness? Were you in a good space? Um, were 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 you really happy? Or what were you going through prior to that breakthrough in terms of your personal life and your internal state? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I actually, during this time, I was kind of going through a rough time. Um, My boyfriend, Max, who I met while on the road traveling, he was also doing some traveling as well. Um, He had had a heroin uh, addiction in the past, and I had met him when he was just coming out of rehab. And so what ended up happening was, is we had this just chain of relapses, not relapsing to heroin necessarily, but relapsing on Xanax and other pills. And so we were down in Florida, revisiting Florida. And one of my friends down there who works with, um, she just recently started working with Bufo. So uh, 5-MEO. 
And she has a great spirit about her. She's a very beautiful human being inside and out. And we were there with her because we knew it would be a place where we would be safe and that she would provide a lot of really grounding energy for Max. And so I felt safe in a time where I didn't necessarily know what was going to be the outcome of my relationship and the outcome of, we were just, I think we were getting ready for another uh, trip. I think we were going to shoot, I want to say maybe Ecuador after this. And so I was just kind of in a, in this place where I, I was nervous about the future, but I felt okay because I had my friend there and she just had a really good spirit about her. And, you know, with psychedelics, with entheogens, I don't really recommend people doing them if they're in a bad headspace. And so while during this time in which I did DMT leading up to it, I was in a very bad headspace for at least a few months but just being around somebody who could provide a really incredible set and setting made all the difference in the world. Well, it's interesting that you talked about the bufo because I guess you were I guess you were smoking five meo DMT versus the NN yeah. DMT, which is I've never done the uh, the five meo, which is supposedly considerably different in terms of the the God experience and um, like, you know what I mean. So I guess you were smoking a different kind of DMT than I was. Yes. Okay, that's that's interesting to note because there is usually a noted uh, difference in the experiences between the two, and I've never done the uh, the the five meo. Um, that's definitely one of those ones where you want to have someone there with you that knows what they're doing. Because um, did you ever watch the Hamilton Morris uh, episode? Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, where he, do he does it in the in like the desert or whatever. That's uh, pretty powerful stuff. Stuff you can actually roll over and like choke on, stuff like that. So definitely want to have a yeah. trip sitter with uh, 5-MeO-DMT. Now, staying in the psychedelic questions, um, I'm interested to hear about your psychedelic retreats because what I try to do is I've tried doing it with groups of people, and it's been only mushrooms. But uh, it's been uh, not chaotic, but uh, it's too much for me to handle. And so I'm interested mm -hmm. to hear, hear about your, I guess it was a women's retreat that you did with psychedelics. Yes. Love to yes. hear about that. Yeah. Um, so obviously I'm pretty passionate about them. And I think if done in the right setting uh, with the right trip setter, that it can be a really incredible experience. So I wanted to provide this to other people and most notably to other women, being that I am a woman myself and I am somebody who has experienced the whole emotional spectrum that most women could possibly handle in their entire lifetime between depression, anxiety, and all of that stuff. So I knew that I could bring something to women that could actually help them, you know, especially if they were looking at, okay, do I try mushrooms or do I go on pharmaceuticals you know I wanted to try to intervene and help women see that maybe there is another way if done responsibly so I ended up holding this retreat in which I think 15 women in total were there um, not including myself and instead of doing a major trip with them um, we had one night it was Saturday night 
or Saturday day, I should say, where we just microdosed. So I had mushroom chocolates and the mushroom chocolates are about one to two grams. And so I just broke up the chocolates into quarters and we made we had a ceremony. We wrote down on a piece of paper what it was that we were hoping the experience could provide for us. And then before eating our chocolate, I had us take our, our piece of paper that had our intention on it and throw it into a fire. So we did that. We had a ceremony around it. We took our microdose and some of the women ended up taking more because they were like, wow, this is fucking great. I feel amazing. I want to take a little more. So they might take another quarter of a, um, a chocolate. But essentially what happened was every single woman except for one had a really incredible time. Um, they, like, as I mentioned, taking microdoses, microdoses, I feel like this, like, weight lifted off my shoulder where I'm like, oh, this is, like, this is what contentment feels like. And that's pretty much what every single one of them felt. So it was a really strong uh, experience that helped to bring peace to a lot of them. Um, what ended up happening was a few of the girls even have quit drinking. So they were big partiers and they didn't really have much direction and all of their friends were drinkers. So they became drinkers. And um, now a few of the girls, a couple of them no longer drink. They microdose or they'll take larger doses. Uh, one woman is a mother and she said she'll microdose and she'll play with her kids. And she's like, it's unlike anything I've ever experienced. Whereas before she was kind of just there babysitting. Now she's fully engaged with her kids and she plays with them. And it's not like she's like trippy face playing with her kids. She's fully, you know, she's capable of making responsible decisions still, but she's there being able to get on kid level with her children and her children, she said, have even noticed that something is different with her and they like who she is now. <laughs> so that being able to provide that and to make the connection. I mean, Jesus Christ, imagine if we could take all of these wine moms, right? We could take all these wine moms and instead maybe give them a microdose and see how their relationship with themselves, their children, their husband, their life might change. Whereas, you know. I don't necessarily mean to judge, but it's been my experience seeing a lot of women around me that they're actually just trying to, you know, squash and, and to push down all of their feelings and all of the things that they're afraid to confront with the wine. So imagine if we could give fucking microdoses to all of these women and all of these fathers and everything and imagine how things could change. So that was essentially my goal was just to help people have a stronger connection to themselves, to their families. And it ended up happening. <laughs> That's amazing. I loved it. I, I was always wondering what, what was the, how you did it, what were the doses and what were the outcomes? Cause you know, you can only say so much online and speaking yeah. about talking about mushrooms online. Um, I remember not too long ago, you had made a post about mushrooms and Facebook mm -hmm. had, so I guess they banned you for three days. They took the post down and they locked you out. Of, they banned you for three days, right? Yep. <laughs> and, and, incredible. Yeah. And, you know, the thing is, um, I'd seen that you'd been on acid math before. And you see what I post. You see what other people post. And you have yeah. some of the most loving 
And I think part of the reason is, is because you are so, you're not weird. You're not, uh, you don't look like a druggie. You don't fit the stereotype. And, and I guess for whatever reason, you have a lot of reach. Um, you have a lot of reach with the right kind of people, meaning the, the people that uh, drink, take pharmaceuticals, um, you know. And so it was interesting to see that somebody like you would even get uh, shut down and banned by Facebook by just expressing uh, your truth about the mushroom, which grows naturally in nature. You know, that's just, it was incredible to me. It's, it's been incredible for me to watch it, knowing you and watch your journey. And uh, I'm very proud to know you because you empower a lot of women. I see the comments. Um, sometimes I'm in tears. Like I'm almost in tears Oof. now think, thinking about it because you do, you empower a lot of women and you say things that a lot of women are afraid to talk about. Um, and I applaud you for that. Um, so that, that kind of leads me into... Um, Thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. It's just wonderful to see that there's people like you out there taking on these things and living in honesty. I truly believe that the, suit, the truth does set you free, and uh, you are mm -hmm. you're, you're a shining example of that. Um, so uh, one of the big things I see in you is... And I don't see it with a lot of women, and I don't. I definitely don't see it with a lot of men. And I, I just love to probe you. Your mind on this is: you are like this person who is able to use cannabis responsibly, and hold it in balance. And I, and I, and I was just so curious how you. I, I guess you've done all the work because one of the reasons I had to stop smoking was I had basically, since I was sixteen, I've either drank and then I switched over to marijuana for eight years. I had never truly dealt with anything underneath those layers. I've done the psychedelic work, but then I was always like the, the, the net of marijuana was not, was catching the feelings, the unprocessed emotions I hadn't been working with. So um, I guess my question is, how are you able to use, how often do you smoke weed? What kind of weed do you smoke? And how are you able to hold it in such balance and stay so motivated? Well, um, thank you for recognizing that I am capable of holding it in balance because it hasn't always been this way. I started smoking pot in high school just to fit in. I had gone to a Catholic grade school from kindergarten to eighth grade, and then my high school years, I went to a public school. And so cannabis was something that I used just to try to like get in with the cool crowd and, and have a place and, and have some kind of community. And for somebody, I was socially anxious. I was awkward. I was incredibly shy. As I said, you know, I didn't really know who I was and I didn't really have the platform or the capability, the power, the strength or confidence within myself to ever share my truth or to even find out what my truth was. And so smoking cannabis back then, I did it, but it made me so much worse. It, it just highlighted all of the awkwardness in me, all of the social anxiety. It made me a really just, it, it, it was tough to be high on pot for me. Um, but what ended up happening was, is I believe it was around the time that I started to take my health more serious and I started doing Beachbody that I decided, you know what, I'm done with this. I'm done smoking pot because it makes me feel like shit. Um, when really I didn't realize then that it was kind of just highlighting all of the aspects of myself that I needed to work on. Right. Um, so I, yeah. So I ended up taking a break from it for about five or so years. 
And then I, you know, I got to a point where I was doing personal development every single day. I was reading self-help books. I had gone to self-help seminars like Tony Robbins. I had seen him and participated in his events. And I thought to myself, I have a better grasp of who I am. And uh, I want to revisit this. I want, I, I know that there is power within cannabis to be, uh, healing medicinal plants. So I just, I started and I didn't have any issues. I didn't, I didn't have that weird social anxiety. I didn't feel stupid. I didn't feel paranoid that everybody was looking at me and talking about me because I was more, um, sure in who I was as a human being. So I think the reason I'm capable of having, and this is just me, this is me personally, but why I'm capable of having, a, I guess, a healthy relationship with cannabis is because I've just had to put a lot of work in. Um, so I do, I do smoke maybe daily. Uh, sometimes I don't, I don't really keep track, but on average, I do smoke daily, uh, but I'm still capable of being who I am. Um, and, and I also keep in mind, too, like, you know, sometimes I will get tongue-tied when I smoke pot. So I didn't smoke before this because I didn't want to be bumbling around and sound like a fool while I was doing this with you. So I had enough self-awareness to know that maybe it wouldn't serve me to smoke pot before this. <laughs> maybe, right. maybe I should devote myself to this and come fully prepared. So I'm, I'm capable of knowing when it is good for me and when it's not. And, and I have that, um, I have a firm grasp on that. Well, you know, that's what I was thinking. My experience in the past three months, I've had eight years of heavy smoking and then the past years have been fully just drenched in concentrates and so what I realized over the past 90 days unpacking these emotion was when we're like I was I was at the point you were years ago where um, it's showing it's it's magnifying these things inside of us that where we need to work and uh, love ourselves and mm -hmm. I wasn't doing that because I thought I could just ride this train indefinitely but you know mm -hmm. my tic my ticket to ride ran out and so what I've learned is um, you uh, maybe one day I can return to it if I if I need it if I want to but the, I had mm -hmm. to. I was putting off my lessons, basically. The things that were causing yep. me so much pain, the social anxiety, the inability to talk. And the only reason this podcast has even started to happen, this is day ninety-two for me. The only day this is the only reason this has started to happen is because I have uh, stepped into the level of uh, like it was blocking my throat chakra to a degree. It was mm -hmm. making my lips. It was making my lips dry. It was making my brain foggy. Like it wasn't serving me, and I didn't need it anymore. Like I had unpacked a lot of the things. That I was, you know, I could take this uh, this blanket of marijuana off me. I could let these things out now because I had the spiritual tools to deal with the things that I couldn't deal with before. And so, um, it's a two sided coin that I finally understood that yes, there's a bad side, but there's also a good side. And um, I was just putting off these lessons by continuing to smoke, and it just got so painful. My debt uh, in terms of like learning lessons and catching up on my life had to be repaid. And that's what I've been doing. And so the universe is perfect in that way, I believe, where when it is time to quit, like, you know, God always gives you uh, as much as you can handle, not any more than you can handle. And so for me to quit was I, I finally have these spiritual tools to understand. I can let go of the substance. I have the tools to deal with my emotions. And basically for me, it was unresolved uh, anger, resentment, 
uh, things that I had just had bottled up inside of me. And I basically, by quitting, uncorked the bottle and started to pour out all these emotions. And uh, not that I'm fully there. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to experiment with sobriety. I mean, good for you. Five years is a long time. And you also did what I'm doing now, which was your own, your own version of detoxification with the, with the body, mm. with the exercise and the yoga and the coaching and the, uh, the body work. And so that's what I'm trying to do now. And uh, so I appreciate your your honest answer. Like, what is your favorite kind or type to smoke? Like, do you do you prefer indica, sativas? Do you prefer concentrates? Do you prefer joints, blunts? Like, what is Kelly's preferred method? <laughs> uh, well, if I can make the edibles, I prefer edibles because it's. It's not necessarily, you know, smoking. While I do smoke pot, I still am under the impression that smoking anything and inhaling something into your lungs might not be the best thing for you. So edibles, uh, if I'm capable of making my own, I prefer to eat edibles. Whereas I know I have made the grave mistake of getting, um, you know, like a brownie or something at a dispensary and overestimate or underestimating it. And it ends up knocking me on my ass. So when I have the opportunity to make my own, I have more of an idea of the concentration in the edible. But if I'm not doing edibles, I love, uh, sativas. Jack Herrera is my favorite. It helps me to be proactive, uh, productive, um, I smoke before I do yoga and I'm able, <laughs> able, I'm capable of going deeper into the poses and really letting my body just melt into the pose. Um, yeah, sativas are by far my favorite cause I'm just, it, it takes who I currently am and just kind of like puts it like zero to 60 and I'm ready to go and I'm ready to like tackle the day. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned it's funny two things actually that you said able because I was actually listening to your other podcast you did <laughs> and you actually said able too in that one. Uh, funny enough. Did I really? You did. And I was laughing that I'm like, I wonder if I wonder if she could I wonder if she'll say that again. And sure enough, here we are. But uh, it's funny it's funny also that you mentioned yoga and uh, uh, marijuana because Shiva is the Adi yogi. He's the original yogi and his uh, you know, he likes to smoke the bangs, the the, the he likes to smoke weed, so I've always mm -hmm. I've also I've always personally identified with Shiva, and uh, I don't know how much you're into the, the the Hinduism and the Indian gods and goddesses, but uh, Shiva is the marijuana smoking Adi Yogi. He's the the first Yogi, and he's the only god uh, in, in the 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 pantheon of Indian gods that is associated with marijuana. So thought that was interesting. Switching gears, um, now this is a semi-controversial topic um, and I run into it a lot and I'm in Florida where you're in California so we're like on opposite ends of the spectrum we just have medical here and it's very limited um, you can get a medical card for $250 and you can get whatever your prescription is we don't have recreational and it's very limited in the medical uh, side of it so going into the next questions are CBD and you are in my opinion and the, the, you're the best and I think the most knowledgeable uh, person I've come across, and I come across a lot of accounts on Instagram and internet in terms of CBD, because in Florida, in my experience, CBD has been a very hit or miss thing because um, I, I've, I've done a lot of research before talking to you, 
and it's uh you know full spectrum cbd uh, not containing mm-hmm. thc um stuff like that like and it's expensive to, to trial and error these things here um yes. i my, my only experience with cbd really is when i was trying to quit last year was i'm like okay well i'll just wean myself off with cbds i will uh take that into my body and i'll have the placebo effect of putting some thing in my mouth to smoke because i was vaping it and uh, mm-hmm. I, don't have, I don't have anxiety or depression. And so in terms of it working on those levels, there was no effect. Um, but uh, I, I don't know, honestly, I've never tried to put it on my knee. I never got like, you know, stuff you could rub on your knee. I never had edible gummies. I've never had the gummies. And then again, if I did get stuff here, I work at a pharmacy and we won't even stock CBD because, again, the quality that we're exposed to is very hit or miss. And yep. For a long time, I thought it was placebo, but then I, I would talk about it on Instagram and somebody would be like, well, my dog is healed or my dog is doing better. <laughs> so how can my dog have yeah. placebo? And I'm like, well, okay, well, you just, you just changed my mind. So um, I'd like you to talk about your experience with CBD. I guess you are in the, uh, you're, you're big in that community. You're always the most knowledgeable person with CBD. Um, and I, and you're working with somebody or a company called sisters of the Valley CBD. So if you'd like to talk about your experience with CBD, that'd be great. Yeah, sure. Um, so I had tried different CBDs before and I didn't really have much luck with them. And that's mostly because I was trying CBDs from states where cannabis wasn't legal or medical wasn't legal or anything like that. So I was basically just getting what you could find at a health food store or like a head shop or something like that. And so I didn't really believe in it all that much. But within the last couple of years, um, I started getting a lot of people reaching out to me who, you know, started to trust me in terms of asking me questions about the best CBD. And I knew being that I'm out in California, I finally had found CBD that worked for for me. And that was CBD that I could find in a dispensary. But here I am getting all of these questions from people all over the country who are asking me what's the best CBD. And I can't tell them the same kind that I'm currently using because they don't have access to it. So I started this campaign where basically I was trying to find, uh, I was doing my own research and I was trying to find a quality CBD company that could be sold to anybody in the United States virtually um, that would work for them, that would be affordable and that would be made of quality ingredients. So I had found a lot of different companies. They had sent me product for me to test out. Uh, you know, a lot of CBD isolates or CBD isolates are something that is more easily, um, it's more easy to get your hands on if you're in a state where pretty much cannabis is just like a no, a no go zone. So the isolates didn't work for me. And um, my boyfriend Max's sister had told me about Sisters of the Valley. They lived in they live in Florida, and they said that they've been ordering it now for a while, uh, and they had a lot of um, good results with the salve in helping to reduce pain and inflammation. So I decided to reach out to them and get some CBD through them, and 
I ended up having to order my own. They didn't pass out free samples like all the other companies did. And I ended up ordering my own from them. Uh, it was just like a half ounce bottle of full spectrum CBD, which means that there is THC in it. So I reached out to them and my boyfriend and I both tried it. Um, we just recently moved and I don't typically get headaches, but I was getting a lot of headaches just from all of the stuff that encompasses moving. And so I would just pop a little like half dropper of CBD in my mouth and it would work. And I was blown away because all of this other CBD that I had found that could be sold to any state um, wasn't working for me. And so when it worked for me and then it worked for Max with his back pain, I was like, oh, this is it. Uh, I was, you know, as I mentioned, it's wholesome, made with quality ingredients, uh, and it's affordable. So I ended up deciding to start um you know, getting product wholesale from them and then providing it to people. And tell you what, I've helped people. Uh, there was a kid, a 10 year old who was taking 10 seizure meds a day. And just imagine at 10 years old and taking 10 different kinds of pills for seizures and it wasn't even helping him. <laughs> um, so here he was taking all of these and I had known his mom from back when I lived in Ohio. And so I reached out to her and she ended up getting some, and lo and behold, the CBD helped. And the days that he was taking his CBD, because she was afraid to co go completely off from his seizure meds, but the days he was taking his CBD, he wasn't having his seizures. So seeing those kinds, having those kinds of testimonies, having other people like my cousin went off her anxiety and her migraine meds, um, it just made me realize that I made the right decision in not only representing Sisters of the Valley, but also deciding to help people with CBD, if it could do this kind of thing for people and help them get off their pharmaceuticals. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, here in Florida, and so you're saying that they're out of Florida, actually. No, I'm sorry. Um, so Sisters of the Valley is out of California. Oh, I only California. know about it because, yeah. Uh, okay. um, Max, uh, my boyfriend's sister, lives in Florida. So she was capable of getting it in Florida. So that was reassuring to me that there wouldn't be any problems in like shipping it state to state. So if I ordered some from you, you could send it here? Correct, yes. Okay, another question is, define affordable CBD. Yeah, so <clears throat> there's two aspects to that. There's, there's quality and then there's affordability. So... What a lot of people see out there is they see CBD and they think, oh my God, I can get 1500 milligrams of CBD for, let's say, 40 bucks, 50 bucks. And so they go ahead and they buy this 15, 1400 milligram CBD that is just like made from a CBD isolate and they get it and it doesn't work. And so now they're out of the money. And then not only that, but it kind of crushed their spirit. And now they're like, well, fuck this. CBD doesn't work. I just wasted my money. I got the, right. the highest dose. And, you know, that's, um, that's what so happened to me. Is it? <laughs> no, totally. Because I, I had totally, I, like I said, I tried it a few times. I'd spent some money on it. I had other people's opinions on it because in Florida, uh, and it's from head shops and from uh, some pharmacies yep. can stop them, stock them in their isolates. And I didn't know that. Until, I, uh, until we started talking about doing this interview a few, few weeks ago and I started to look at all your stuff and to go into the CBD research because 
a lot of people online on Instagram will tell me too, well, CBDs are bullshit. But then I'll put it out there. I'll put the feeler out there. And they're like, no, man, my dog is fine, dude. My dog is chilling out. How can it be placebo? <laughs> how can it be placebo for the dog? Or like you said, how can it be placebo yeah. for a ten-year-old? So right. Uh, I, I've I've been you've convinced me and not only you but other people but specifically <laughs> you because again I know you are not going to sit there like me and try to give people bullshit like you you just mm-hmm. you know your your reputation means way too much to you as an honest person and you'd never want to be seen yeah. as a, as a snake oil salesman. Totally, yeah. I. I... I want to share shit that I believe in. <laughs> I'm not looking to put the wool over anybody's eyes um, because I believe there's stuff out there that really works. And why would I try to get somebody on something that doesn't work? Um, but yeah, you know, like people will do that. They'll go ahead. And you're not the only one. I can't tell you how many people will buy like CBD gummies from a head shop and they're like, well, I spent this money and this shit doesn't work. Well, of course not because it's garbage that you bought. It was probably made... Nine, I could 99% guarantee that it was made with uh, industrial hemp, which industrial hemp is largely different than the CBD that is used in the Sisters of the Valley. So industrial hemp was selectively bred to be used for textiles and right. uh, clothing and that kind of stuff. So it, the CBD profile in industrial hemp is probably really fucking crappy. Whereas the, so hemp, from my understanding, don't quote me entirely, but from my research, um, hemp as defined by the government, because the government actually defined what hemp is, um, it is any cannabis sativa plant that has less than 0.03% THC in it, which means that you can have hemp that is made from a cannabis or marijuana plant that has just been bred over time to have really, really low uh, THC in it and high CBD content. And that's what you're getting when you order, you know, your CBD through me, or you find a quality full spectrum uh, CBD product. And that's why it works because the plant itself comes with THC and CBD in it. If you weren't meant to have THC in your marijuana or in your CBD, the plant wouldn't have had THC in it. So when you strip the THC from the CBD, it's not going to be as effective as if it's together for the entourage effect. You know, it's interesting you say that because I found the opposite thing happening with the high grade THC, the moon rocks, the can, uh, the oil, mm-hmm. the, the pins, high levels of THC, low levels of CBD, and you get an unbalanced effect in the opposite direction in terms of uh, it, the, it almost becoming toxic to you, like your, your, your cannabinoid right. receptors and like, yeah, like there's not the full spectrum of the plant. And that's basically what marijuana told me many times when I asked it, I was like, what's wrong here? It's like, you're basically with uh, concentrates, I was raping the plant of yep. what, I, what I wanted from it and not getting mm-hmm. the things that actually balanced it out. So it's interesting that it works the opposite way with CBD. And so uh, what, are, what are your opinions on concentrates and dabs and, <laughs> and, and the pins? Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you what. I don't know how all these weed famous Instagram girls are dabbing these monstrosities of dabs. <laughs> like, I want to see what they look like a half hour later. That's what I want to see on their Instagram feed. I don't know how the hell they're doing it. Um, I, I, you know, dabbing is great for some. 
I can dab, but mainly dabbing definitely puts me on my ass. So, you know, to each their own, but I'd much rather not get that fucked up. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what I mean by you having, like, you have this healthy look to you, whereas, where not to judge these people, but men and women uh, that are heavy users, myself included, I noticed a big difference in the way my face looked 90 days ago versus now. And uh, I see that a lot of times on very <coughs> weed-centric Instagram. So that's why I wanted to really talk to you because you have you bring so many things to the table in terms of, you know, personal development, helping other people, living in honesty, uh, balanced cannabis use, um, the other psych- the other psychedelics, and mm-hmm. you know, getting those to other people. Um, I guess the next thing I want to kind of move into is uh, I, I found this uh, again humorous how the universe works, which is the the founding of NorCal Trim Trap, which mm-hmm. was what I read on the website, was basically born out of a DEA raid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so before Max and I had met, he was growing uh, in Northern California and he got raided. He was doing everything to the T. It was legal the way he was operating, but because it was still illegal on a federal level, uh, for whatever reason, they ended up raiding him and they took down his grow. And so by the time I, him and I met, he was still going through with all of the legal procedures two years after being raided. Uh, you know, he was going to court every, every month. (laughs) It it was just absolutely crazy. And so he wanted to remain within the cannabis industry, but because of the court ruling, he could no longer be a part of growing cannabis. Basically, he had this idea back on the farm. He had been in the community, in the cannabis community for six years growing, and he needed this contraption, which basically just helps you to sort out all of like your big buds, like the big juicy buds you want when you're buying like an eighth of weed um, from the Skittles, all the little popcorn small nugs. And so he knew that there was a market for it and nobody else had actually created it. So out of wanting to still remain in the cannabis industry, but not being able to grow anymore, um, the NorCal Trim Trap was birthed. Yeah, I looked into that, and I was actually surprised that something like that hadn't been thought of, you know? It's just yeah. uh, so, such a simple thing. It's to the people that haven't are, that are listening, I'll probably post a picture of it or something um, in the video part of this. But it's basically like a sifter. You put the weed on top, and all, all the big nugs, the little nugs, and all the shake, and it, it just separates the big, and everything falls to the bottom. It's a very simple contraption. My question is, is it, is it patented? Uh, yeah, he is patent pending on it. Okay, cool. So yeah, I thought that was cool that um, he's able, he gets raided, but he's still able to, like, because of that, he's forced to go in another direction. And see, I like to hear stories like that because it shows people that the universe is always working for you, even when the, mm-hmm. you know, your, your ego perceives the chips of being down. Like, it's actually maybe pointing you in a direction where you could make more money or be, uh, have a higher potential, serve a greater need instead of just, you know, growing and, in, in, uh, you know, growing weeds. So I thought that was an amazing story, and and I'm going to stick with Max here because um, I think the most powerful thing in terms of all of the research I've done on you was the Ibogaine and your ayahuasca story, and I think uh, like having a partner like him who's going through what he's going through is like so like the epitome of the things you believe in 
you know, somebody who gets hooked mm-hmm. on pharmaceuticals by no fault of their own, and then, you know, is led through this healing journey with the plant. So if you don't mind, um, I'd love to hear about the Ibogaine story and the ayahuasca story. Yeah. So um, we got to this point in the relapse where it was, okay, what else can we do here? Because he had done treatment and... Well, can I, can I, know, can I stop you there for a second? Um, yeah, sure. I've heard the story, but mm-hmm. Max basically, from what I heard in your other stuff, was he got in a motorcycle accident. And that's what initially got him hooked on the prescription pills, which led him into like heroin use. He got clean for a while. And I, through some relapse, he got into, like you said before, the Xanax and stuff. So I just wanted to yeah. that that uh, that haven't heard this story to know that he got into drugs because he was in a motorcycle accident that got him on to pharmaceutical prescription narcotics. Yeah. I mean, hell, most of the people that I know who have suffered from opioid addiction, heroin addiction, or who have died because of it got started just because of uh, (laughs) a prescription. That's all it took. And that's all it took for him. He was involved in a motorcycle accident. And then, you know, the opioids weren't working as well. And they start to not be as potent. And then it's just the domino effect and and it'll take you to some really nasty places. And that's where he was in his life. He sought out treatment and he was doing really well, but he was also in a really stressful period of his life post treatment um, where he was taking care of his father who had just gone through a liver transplant and his father had had addiction issues as well. So it was kind of a, a very negative place for him to be at. Um, so he ended up relapsing on some pills and we ended up getting to this place where we're just like, okay, what's it going to be? And I had heard of Ibogaine in the past. Um, I think I heard about it through Aubrey Marcus on Joe Rogan. And so we started watching videos. I showed him the video of Aubrey on, uh, the JRE, We watched a documentary and then we just decided to go for it. So we started reaching out to places. We found an Ibogaine center down in Mexico and I decided to go down there with them too because I wanted to be a part of it. I wanted to see it firsthand. I heard that it was like one of the most intense psychedelics that you could possibly do. So I wanted to see what it was like and you know, I wasn't going because I needed any help through drug addiction or whatever, but I still had anxiety issues. You know, that's kind of just an underlying thing for me. And so I knew it could help with anxiety. And I also knew that it could help with, um, shit, sorry, brain farting, but I knew it could help with anxiety. And I also knew it could be a spiritual tool as well. And we went down there and it was just him and I at this really incredible hacienda down in Mexico. And honestly, it was probably, I think, three or four days leading up to the Ibogaine treatment where they would like microdose us with Iboga. And we would do all of these ceremonial weedy tribe customs from um, Africa where, I mean, we were doing like these flower baths and some really just like, if you're not prepared for it, it's really out there hippie shit. Not necessarily hippie, but you think it's hippie just because (laughs) it's all you know, but really it's like ceremonial stuff 
um, coming straight out of Africa, but you're doing all this stuff and you're like thinking to yourself, I mean, Max and I even turned to each other and we're like, are we being punked right now? Because this is just like so outlandish, the shit that we're doing to prepare us for Ibogaine. Um, but anyway, we ended up doing the Ibogaine and it was incredible. Um, it, it helped Max entirely. He felt really amazing from doing it. Um, the one thing though was after, um, after doing the Ibogaine, we knew we needed to return back to Florida to help take care of his father some more. So here's what I really want people to walk away with is you can do ayahuasca, you can do Ibogaine, you can do all of these things, but if you're not really prepared to change your home environment, to change the influences around you, the shit's not going to work. Um, so what ended up happening was um, we ended up, so he was doing really well, but we also had to return back to Florida to take care of his father. And it was a very stressful situation. And so Max ended up relapsing again on the pills. And it's not because Ibogaine didn't work or it wasn't helpful, but it was that he returned somewhere that was actually quite toxic for him. Well, see, so let, me, let me stop something... you there. Let me. So that was yeah. one, of the, one of the questions I was wanted to ask when I was actually listening to the story before was, um, I was curious to know, like, was there that physiological addiction which Ibogaine is supposed to stop, or was it something that I call these addictions a lot of times? There's some karmic energy that still has to be unwound, and I'm trying not to judge yes. people who are in different states than I am with drugs, but I am truly a believer that. Um, once you transcend, you can trans like the you can transcend the the physiological problems of what it's doing with your brain and your body, which is what I think the ibogaine solved. But there are still the karmic things that are still left to be unwound, which was you know not to compare mine to his, but there was things over and over again where I'd make a, a step forward with marijuana, and then I'm like, oh well, there's this next thing I got to stop selling it, or I've got to stop being around people who smoke it. And mm -hmm. so there was these things that I still had to unpack, and I would relapse, and so. I'm getting I'm getting goosebumps um, hearing this because mm -hmm. I'm learning that uh, through you that it, it, it's true even with uh, heavy narcotic that yes. uh, it's not just the physiological thing which a lot of people will tell me it's like dude you don't understand it's 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 the it's I can't break this because of the physiological thing but I'm like no and I don't want to judge but it's actually very um, interesting to learn this and I'm and I, I'm sorry to interrupt but I just really had to know. Mm -hmm. Um, so he came back and he was dealing with a problem that was no, it was not related. There was no like physical need for him to reach for a narcotic. It was simply something exactly. spiritual and karmic. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, he didn't have any physical dependency or, or urge. It was just a, a way to kind of like deal and to cope with the present situation, which was, as I said, it, it was a very negative place to be. And so that's, that's how he coped. And since then, though, um, you know, in hindsight, we discuss the Ibogaine treatments, the ayahuasca and all of that. And he himself realizes and, and understands that they have helped to make him the person he is today. All of the, you know, all of the epiphanies he's had on ayahuasca have helped him to piece by piece to become somebody who is free of this stuff today and not only because he's done that kind of level of work but he's also done the level of work to also 
find a way to integrate into a new reality, not a reality where he's returning to um, negative people or he's surrounding himself with um, chances to relapse. You know, he, he's got direction and he has um, hope for the future. And I think um, from the people that I have encountered, a large reason why people do experience drug addiction aside from, you know, falling into it through pharmaceuticals or what have you is, is there's just a void. There's just a void there that they're looking to fill. There's this lack of purpose or a feeling of, yeah. And you know, when you lack purpose or you lack direction, you're going to fill that lack of purpose and direction with anything you can to try to numb it out. So my question is, so he comes back and he deals with whatever situation is at home waiting for him. He then relapses. How does he break free again? Does he just do it through willpower? And he's basically, he unties the karmic knot, which was whatever that situation was. And so he doesn't have to work as hard to detox this next time around. What was this, what got him free finally after he came home from doing the Ibogaine and in dealing with his father? What was the thing? Was it something he just did on his own or did he take more medicine somewhere else? How did he finally get clean? (coughs) So, I mean, all along the route, we've done ayahuasca. So we've done ayahuasca maybe like three times together. And so that's definitely helped. But that hasn't been the main catalyst. It's been just continually doing the work, deciding and, and knowing that, you know, just one ayahuasca treatment might not be it. For some people, one ayahuasca treatment, one iboga treatment, and they're good and they're they're set for the rest of their lives and they know how they have to be. But the reality is for a lot of people, it takes revisiting some places. You know, for me, it takes me doing mushrooms every now and again for me to come back to an understanding of why I'm here and my purpose and, and to feel more confident in myself. So between like doing ayahuasca, doing mushrooms and also a yoga practice, uh, yoga has been huge for both of us, but largely it's been huge for him because it's a time in which he can get lost in, in his body and not lost in his head. Right. Well, I'll tell you, that's been powerful. It was powerful to hear it the first time. It was powerful to hear it again. I want to talk about the ayahuasca with you because I think one of the most profound things of your whole story in terms of your personal journey was going through your ayahuasca ceremonies. Now, the first time, according to the video I watched, it said the ayahuasca didn't do anything for you. Um, Now, my question is, for that first time, the dieta is very, or the dieta, whatever, however it's pronounced, Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of times it's basically this a month before. So there's no drugs or alcohol, including marijuana. And mm-hmm. then 48 to 72 hours, you're not supposed to have maybe up to a week, no fried foods, no excessive oil, no sexual contact, no fermented food, no caffeine, dairy, pork, red meat, basically, <laughs> basically anything that's going to create some kind of layer in your body. So my question, right. my question for your first ceremony was, were you, were you smoking marijuana at that time? Did you follow that to the T? I mean, was that a layer you were working through? Uh, so at the time, back when I was living in Florida, when we did the ayahuasca, uh, cannabis wasn't something I was smoking every day. Okay. So yeah. And I, I eat pretty, 
I, I eat stuff that's <laughs> most people frown upon. Um, so it wasn't an issue of the diet, dieta, maybe? <laughs> yeah, that's lost on me too. But it wasn't an issue necessarily of the diet or the cannabis. I mean, maybe it could have been the sex thing. But um, <laughs> other than that, though, we didn't, I don't believe that that maybe played a role. I think it was just maybe my soul because I slept throughout the whole thing. Maybe that's just what I needed. <laughs> I needed yeah, totally. optimal rest. Well, one time I had given someone LSD who had never taken it before. They'd never taken any psychedelic. They were very sleep deprived. They were living a very hectic life. And they slept for 48 hours, which is unheard of on LSD because wow. it's such right, it's such an amphetamine. Um, and so what what I've come to know is that's the way it works sometimes. It gives you what you need. And it's not necessarily what you want. It's what you need. So um, I'm glad that you did follow. And to follow with the sexual thing, basically in the diet, it's, it's kind of two things. Um, in regards to a man, the reason he's not supposed to, from what I've read, um, engage in sexual contact before is – your sexual fluid is like this, uh, this uh, sex, super, sexual like superconductor, like energetic superconductor. Mm -hmm. And so, the more the man retains himself, the more energy there's there to be worked with. Maybe the same for women. I can't speak for women. I don't know. But in terms of the man, prior mm -hmm. to the event, he's reserving his energy. Like there's more superconductive fluid there. Now, the reason on the back end for both men, women and men is your soul, your spirit is opened up. And so if you're sleeping with someone who is not, uh, well, you sleep with anyone, your energetic body is kind of open. Yes. And these spirits on the other person, these energies can leak into you at a greater level. That's been what I've heard. I've never done ayahuasca. Um, I'm working on some kind of pharmawasca, you know, crystallized DMT in a in a in a, mm. uh, in a MAO. Something you can do at home, um, a, a little bit easier than brewing up ayahuasca. But that's still on the horizon for me. But I think the most important thing in terms of what I saw today with your with all of your content, the thing that really hit me the most, and I don't know if you want to tell the story or or I can just say the quote. It's up to you, but it was very profound. I think you, I think you know what I'm getting at with what you learned from your second ayahuasca uh, experiment, uh, experience. I think you might re be referring to how I had an epiphany with my mother. Is that? It, yes. That, I think that was the most yeah. profound thing I've, I, I've researched in terms of your, your experiences. Yeah. Um, so it was exactly what I needed. Uh, I was laying out underneath the stars after doing my second ceremony and all of a sudden out of nowhere without even having to think or consider my mother, just this thought came to me of if she would have known better, she would have done better. And with that, I just started crying and it was really profound because I never looked at it in such a way. I always looked at it as being a victim and, you know, all of the things that she done to me throughout my childhood and adult life. Right. But, you know, the truth is, is why, why would anybody choose to act the way my mother has acted if they would know better? So if she would have known better, she probably wouldn't have done it half the shit she did to me. <laughs> right. I, I just think that's so healing for a lot of people to hear because they are judging their parents for acting a certain way, but they, are, they don't realize that their parents are acting at their highest level of consciousness, their best yes. intentions for their child. They don't know better. They haven't been raised a certain way. And so what we're supposed to do, I think, as light workers and, and, and people who are doing the things that we're doing is to break the karmic chains of our family's like, storyline. Yes. So 
you have been able to transcend. And when you, I think when somebody heals themselves, because the universe is holographic in nature, that is a very, it's a very cascading effect. And it's especially the localized um, system of your consciousness, like your family, your friends, your partner, the people closest to you have the, the strongest effect. I think it reverberates out into the world completely because I truly have seen it in my own life where I've healed something in myself and I can see it like on the TV on the other side of the world. Like I've shifted into a slightly different dimension of my healing. And so it's definitely apparent um, the closer that reality is to you, i.e. your parents, your partner. Those are your strongest mirrors of uh, like your reality, like how these people who you basically can't uh, ever kind of break away in terms of like their relationships. You can friends come and go partners even come and go but the blood you know for the most part it's always there and so to hear that you know if your mom would have known better she would have done better um that's that's the power of the ayahuasca to show something that's so apparent mm -hmm. or, or the, the mushrooms have done it too for me but to show something that's like literally under your nose it's hidden from your consciousness but then it's just given to you so i thought that was beautiful right. thank you it was it's brought me so much healing amen and so I guess moving on out of the psychedelic realms um, and the reason that I've been attracted to your, what you've been doing, how you caught my attention was obviously the floating. And uh, let's see here. From what I was able to understand, you've been floating now for about three and a half years. Um, looks like your first float was in Michigan at a place called NeuroFitness in Southfield, Michigan. Uh, shout out to mm -hmm. them. Um, so how many times have you floated since then? Oh, uh, so many times I've lost count, probably somewhere maybe between 20 to 30. Different places or different, cause I know you traveled a lot too. How many different yeah, places I've, do you think you floated at? I would probably put it at 15 different places. Awesome. So yeah. let's let's go back to your your first float, and I think it was like February thirteenth, two thousand and five. Your first float. <laughs> That's I, great. You didn't know that. <laughs> I try to do my research. Um, one of the things I hate when somebody's being interviewed is like the interviewer not really caring or not having yeah. their stuff together. And uh, with the internet out there too, like it's easy to put these things together. Um, and right. that's that's the other thing. Like interviewing someone like you is so easy because. You're like me. You're so honest and out there. It's very easy to, even if I didn't know, I could ask you. But uh, right. definitely. So how was that first float? How did you get drawn into floating? Uh, yes. Yeah, so uh, NeuroFitness has been renamed. They are now Inception. So Inception float up in near Ann Arbor, Michigan. Um, but anyway, so I started... I let me let me backtrack. I found them or I found floating through Hamilton Morris again. So I watched a vice piece on him where he had floated in Denver, I believe. And the idea behind it really caught me uh, being somebody that at this point in time in my life, I was really heavily evolved involved into Beachbody, which meant that I was spending a lot of time on social media. I was spending a lot of time on my phone and doing that just can really be taxing not only on your soul, but just in your entire psyche, uh, being glued to a computer all the damn time and having so much 
sensory overload coming at you is a very overwhelming feeling. And if you're not quite sure what that feeling is, it's probably the anxiety that's underlying in your life. <laughs> you know, um, if you have anxiety, it's probably because just everywhere you go, you're being sold something, there's something flashy, there's stuff to pull your attention away from what you're supposed to be doing. And I recognize that after watching the Hamilton piece on floating. And so I knew I needed to try it out for myself. So I went up there, which was probably, I think, like a two-hour drive from my house. But I knew I needed to do it. So me and my ex went, and it was incredible. After floating for my first time, it was a little awkward because uh, I wasn't really sure what to expect and how it would work. But coming out of it, I felt really relaxed. I felt really calm. I wanted nothing to do with my cell phone. Absolutely nothing. And that's another thing like about psychedelics too, after I do mushrooms and, um, you know, whatever it might be, I want nothing to do with my phone, nothing to do with like being around technology. I just kind of want to like enjoy my own self and enjoy nature. And so after experiencing that with floating, um, it was something that I wanted to do again. So it ended up becoming like a birthday tradition uh, for a couple of years where I would go up there for my birthday and do it. And then I ended up moving down to Florida. There wasn't a float spa near me, but eventually I ended up finding one in another area of Florida. And since then I've just, I've, I think I floated in almost every tank possible. I've floated at crashes uh, place, uh, the float lab down in LA, I've floated in like open tanks where there's no uh, like little um, cubby or anything that you step into. It's just a completely open room. Um, I've introduced a lot of people to floating just because it's just if you can get out of your head and if you can just relax and melt into it, it can be a really beautiful experience. And I've even gotten Max into it. And we're out here in Grass Valley area of California. And we've actually gotten a membership to the local place because it's just that incredible. Oh, that's good to hear. Uh, shout out to Hamilton Morris. We love you. Just adore <laughs> you. Um, anybody yes. curious about the episode we're talking about, it's called Tanks for the Memories, and you can check it out on Viceland. And he does, I think he does it in Colorado, and he, he does do it with Crash, too. Like, that interview, he... Oh, he, yeah, that's right. He floats with Joe Rogan at his place. He gets an edible, and then he goes to the float lab. And so, did you actually get to meet Crash when you went there? Yes. Very wow. cool, dude. You are the float queen. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> um, yes. what, do, you, do you remember where you floated in Florida? Oh, oh no. Um, no, I don't. And it's a shame because I'm friends with her too. And I forgot the name of her float studio. The city. I think it's in Jupiter. Hmm. Can't think of Let it me myself. Look. So it's okay. Yeah. You can look it up. Well, mm. I'll, I'll uh, ask you another question here. Um, uh, transitions float. There you go. Shout out to transitions float. Um, so you, our sponsor was Capital, and one of the things we're doing with the, this podcast is we're interviewing people like you who have a story to tell, um, something that I find interesting, whether it's memes or, in your case, cannabis, psychedelics, floating, obviously. Like, that's the big thing with you. I think the number one thing I adore about you, again, is your honesty and your, like, your ability to serve other people 
coming from that honest like self-love space so that's like the number one reason which is what i try to do too is, like serve what's in front of me with, with love but uh also like floating obviously is the big attraction so um so that's what we try to do on this show and so capital in sacramento they were kind enough did they did they did max float too i think right yes he did how was the experience at capital floats oh it was great um very welcoming crew working there for one very nice people um but it was great um they have the kind of tanks that are built into the wall which is really nice because i feel that that's more soundproof and lightproof than the little pods that are made um so it was really i mean we floated i think we had a 60 minute float and in that time, it just a lot. I was allowed to melt into myself to kind of stop all of the crazy monkey mind thinking that typically goes on in my head. And I was allowed to just really be present with myself and to breathe deep. Uh, that's something I really focus on when I'm floating is working on my breath and paying attention. You know, if my mind does travel elsewhere, I just get back to my breath. And at Capital Floats, it's really great, too, because they have this meditation pod, and I didn't get a chance to do it, but I'm really looking forward to going back and doing the meditation pod. And Basically, it's this little, it looks like something straight out of Star Trek, but you can hop on inside it, and it blocks out all other things, kind of the way a, a float tank would in and of itself, but you can also have, like, binarial beats um going at the same time oh yeah uh, from, okay yeah i yeah, was looking so at that today look, it's called the the yeah. soma dome the world's yes. first meditation dome at the soma dome mm -hmm. yes that's it um so i'm really looking forward to doing that at some point and then not only that but they also offer like on it um i don't if anybody's familiar with aubrey marcus or his company on it um, they had Alpha Brain, so I got to try that out as well. I was really stoked about that. Have, but, you, ever, um, have, you, ever, uh, have you ever tried Alpha Brain before that time? No, no. I I heard about it like hell about five years ago, and I had wanted to try it out because I heard it could help with lucid dreaming. Um, but unfortunately, I took it too early in the day for it to have really any impact on my dreaming. Well, I'll tell you, it, one thing I'll say about it, it, if you have the money, I would I would encourage people to try it out because I didn't do it for the lucid dreaming, but it feels like it lights my third eye up when I take it in the middle of the day. Like, there is something to it, and I don't think it's placebo. Um, I think the stuff really does work. It's an interesting stuff. It's a little bit pricey, but it's worth experimenting with, especially in the tank. Another thing I recommend sometimes in the tank is taking melatonin. Um, that, could be mm. placebo. that could be placebo as well. I don't know what kind of experimentation you've done in the tank with substances. Uh, one of the questions <laughs> I had for you, one of the questions was, I usually tell people for the first float to go sober. First few times, get a baseline understanding of what floating is to a sober consciousness. And then, you know, microdose, smoke weed, whatever. What do you think about smoking weed or microdosing? Have you done that? Do you recommend it? What, what are your thoughts? Mm-hmm. Uh, great question. As you have mentioned, I also recommend if somebody is new to floating that they try it sober so they can have an understanding and a baseline of what it's like. Because, I mean, it really is a, an experience all 
of all in and of itself. I mean, some people flip out being in the tank. Some people really enjoy it. Some people blast off to outer space. So to understand what your baseline could be like when you enter a float tank is really important. Um, and after that, I, I encourage somebody to experiment more with, um, you know, maybe cannabis or microdosing. I know that when I smoke before I go in, it tends to help just quiet my mind a little bit more. Uh, sometimes I'll get in there and, you know, it's not every time where it's just an amazing experience. I've had times where I'll get into a float and I'll actually like, Jesus Christ, like, when is this going to be over? <laughs> like, when am I out of here? You know? Um, so I noticed though that the times that, you know, if I do smoke before then, that kind of part of myself is more mute. Yeah. You know, my experience with it is basically this, when I'm sober, I can I get in my groove quickly. I can drive it as long as I'm in a good resting state to begin with. Like if I'm already like had a fired up day, it's going to be tough to go down. Like what I tell people is, whatever you're taking into the tank, like it's going to be that much harder to work with it. Like if you come into the tank hyped mm-hmm. up, it's it's got to work through your layers of hype first. If you're already relaxed, yep. you're gonna go you're gonna go that much deeper. So it's just, it's kind of like a psychedelic in that respect. There is truly nothing like it. It's nothing like doing a psychedelic. It's nothing like microdosing. It's nothing like smoking weed. Um, the most powerful experience I've actually had have been sober, outside of obviously taking high doses of psychedelics. That's a different story. But, um, and those are rare. Unless you own a tank, it's very hard to walk into a float center with three or four tabs of acid in you at just the right time you know, <laughs> and, and, and not yeah. look like a complete insane person. So the few times I've done that has been overnight floats with people who are in the know. But uh, they've been rare, and one day I'd like to have my own tank, but... Uh, that's for another time. But again, uh, big shout out to Capital Floats. I'll say this about Capital Floats. Not only have they been cooperative and super eager to help me do this project, but prior to me wanting to do a podcast about it, I had brought, there had been a few memers that I had noticed online who were, from my perspective, going through a lot of problems with pharmaceuticals and very depressed parts of their life. And I had, through Capital, been able to provide these people a free float. Uh, unfortunately, you can lead a horse to water. You can't make them drink. They still have not taken up the offer. But So that's what I mean. Like, There's so many people out there that could benefit from this. But you know, I truly believe that um, in terms of helping people, m- my theory is this. Like, outside of me judging the universe, it's operating perfectly outside of my like judgment. And unless somebody's actually coming to me and saying, hey, can you help me? Then I'm assuming that the universe is running perfectly because there are so many people I would love to dose. There were so many people I would love to get into the tank, but they may have not unpacked the lessons learned to get that healing or they may, you know what I mean? Like, do you understand what I'm trying to say? Mm-hmm. Oh, I get it. <laughs> I want to, I, I learned that I, I burned my hand by trying to reach into the pit of fire and trying to help people who don't want help you know, you can right. people. You can only help yourself, right? You can't help people that aren't ready. As much as you want to, you will go into hell with them. That's what usually happens. So, it's mm-hmm. a beautiful. I just say the universe is perfect unless it comes to me saying it's not perfect, and that's how I help people. And sometimes the best thing you can do is not help someone. So I've yeah. tried so hard to help a lot of people, but then I said, you know what? I've done all I can. I just let go, and they find their way. Like you know, some some people need the lesson of using pharmaceuticals unfortunately um and 
so I don't judge it. I release that. And working at a pharmacy, I've seen that firsthand many times over that uh, they have to learn these lessons. And what I tell people with addiction is it's going to come down to this, basically. You're, um, the pain of continuing to do it has got to be less, or the pain of quitting has to be less than the pain of continuing to do it. Meaning, like, hopefully you won't end up in jail or losing an arm or hurting or killing someone, but the pain of continuing has to be, uh, it has to be more painful to continue using your substance than to quit using the substance, basically, is what I'm trying to say. And so, hopefully, you come into an awareness that wakes you up and says, okay, you know, I need to stop before I lose my house or I lose my wife or I lose my arm or I crash into somebody or I go to jail. Some people don't get that, you know, they have to, that's their lesson, that's their karma. I believe those kind of things. And that's my methodology in healing people is if they don't want my help, they're going to get to a point where it just becomes too painful to do it anymore. And so uh -huh. I, I, I sit here and I wait with loving arms open and all the tools that they can choose themselves because I never, ever, ever um, try to say, you need to do acid, you need to do mushrooms. Okay. Uh, and that's what I liked about what you were saying in a lot of your videos and interviews, which was you don't recommend ayahuasca for everyone. You don't recommend uh, mushrooms for everyone, you know, and that's what I appreciate you. I think you're on that same kind of level of understanding. Yeah, I mean, just some people aren't meant to do that kind of stuff. It really requires some deep diving and some people might not ever be ready to go to that level. And then sometimes people might not necessarily need to experience mushrooms to even get to that level. You know, um, sometimes it can happen through meditation. It can happen through yoga, can happen through a religious experience, even as much as I don't want to say that. Um, so to think that everybody needs to do it is just complete. It, it, it's bullshit. Totally. You know, people need, yeah, people need to figure out what they really need on their own terms. And you can guide them. You can share your testimonials, your truth. But at the end of the day, if you have to force somebody into making a change or trying something out, that's typically when you're going to find that there's going to be some kind of problem that occurs because of it. You know, somebody could make the change, but they're going to do it just because you want them to do it or they're going to feel forced by you. And then it's never really true to them either. It's never because they actually intended to do it for themselves and because they knew they needed the change, but they were just doing it to appease somebody else. And when you come from that space, it's never really true. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Good stuff. We're over at two hours now. I've only got a few more questions for you. Um, I appreciate all okay. your time. I know what's it's, uh, nine o'clock there. It's 12 o'clock here. Um, oh, geez. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, no. I, I enjoy it. I like, you know, my favorite uh, program growing up was Coast to Coast AM. I don't know if you know what that is. It's like, yeah, you do. Yeah. Okay. It's George, great. George Norrie, Art Bell. UFOs, paranormal stuff, uh, weirdos calling mm -hmm. in. I like being up late and I like talking about these kind of things. So I got only have a few more questions here. Um, okay. One more question, really, in the float realm, uh, which is, what would you? What are some tips for a first-time floater? Like, if you were gonna bring your friend to the float center, what would be some tips you would tell them? Okay. Yeah. So my tips would be. Um, definitely get in the tank and try to calm your mind as much as you can. 
by breathing deep. So breathing deep essentially looks like for me, when I get into the tank, I try to breathe in for a count of four, then I pause and then I try to exhale for a count of four. And from there, I try to build upon that. So my count of four will turn into a count of five, count of five will turn into a count of six, all the way up to like a count of 10. And another thing is, is I recommend that because most people hop in and there's anxiety, they start worrying, you know, maybe somebody's claustrophobic, but when you have the opportunity to really pay attention to your breath, your breath gives you the opportunity to really relax. It helps to um, change your brain waves and really get you into a state where you're able to relax. And so from there, what happens for me, and I know it happens to other people, is you're breathing and then all of a sudden you start thinking about something. You start thinking about what you need to do after you leave. And then from there you realize, oh shit, I stopped breathing. And then from that space, most people, myself included, are inclined to be like, well, fuck, like, Jesus Christ, Kelly, what are you doing? And then you tend to beat yourself up and then you've lost it all. Um, so when you're in the tank and you're trying to relax, you're trying to breathe, uh, and if you find yourself, you've floated off into different thoughts, when you realize you've done that, don't beat yourself up. Just get right back to breathing and just go into a place where you start to really calm down your central nervous system and you're really taking time and the space necessary for you to relax. And from there... Um, I also encourage most people when I talk to them to really pay attention to the sounds of your body because we live in such a loud, noisy space and time where we have lost connection to our actual physical body. And we don't know what it sounds like when it's breathing. We don't know what it sounds like to really yawn or to really like exhale and this may seem like a bunch of like hippie hoopla bullshit, but if you take the time and space while you're in there, if you just close your eyes and you move your eyeballs back and forth, I can even hear my fucking eyeballs moving in my head. <laughs> like, yeah. when are you, when are you ever quiet enough where you can hear your eyeballs moving in your head? Um, you can hear your heartbeat. I know even laying in bed, I don't hear my heartbeat. I don't have the TV on. I don't have any like white noise going. I still can't hear my heartbeat in bed. So like to be able to reconnect with your body on a more personal and intimate level when there's not a bunch of stuff pulling you away, a bunch of sensory stuff that's trying to, you know, um, take your attention away from yourself. It's a really beautiful feeling. You have a much deeper appreciation for yourself. Yeah, that's actually one of the things that a lot of people tell me when they come out of the tank is I've, I've, I've never heard my heart beat like that before. And uh, yeah. it's, it's another thing I recommend for pregnant women that float with their child in their, in their body. They can, have that, they can have that connection. They can hear the stuff going on with that. Obviously, I don't know anything about that. But uh, I, you, you've made some very good points, and I'm glad I asked you that question. Okay, so you got a self-floating. How would you, in like less than two minutes, sell like sell the idea of floating to someone who's never floated before? Do you have a catchphrase? Like, how would you sell floating? 
<laughs> do you want to feel more at peace? <laughs> Are you tired of feeling like you're just stuck in the rat race and you're running around from one thing to another and you're taking your kids to all of their sports lessons and then you're going to work and you really actually never have time to yourself? Do you want time to yourself? <laughs> do you want to feel more at peace with who you are and peace with your body? Uh, if that's the case, then I recommend floating for you. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, thank you. you. You're an excellent, excellent salesman of this stuff. Um, if I was to crown anyone like the float queen of the interwebs, it would definitely be you for sure. Um, <laughs> there's, there's a lot of women that uh, they float and they put their picture out there and they put their experiences out there, but nobody is as consistent with as you are. And like, it's that level of like showing the body too, because a lot of people don't realize you float naked. Um, and that's yes. one of the things they think, do I wear, do I bring a bathing suit? Am I wearing a bathing suit? A lot of people don't realize because they see the pictures of women in bathing suits and men in their swim trunks that you're bathing naked. And so that's an, that's that next level of honesty that you provide of being comfortable with yourself. And uh, I mean, cause it does, it, it, it's one thing to talk about schedule one drugs and hide behind an Instagram account. It's another thing to put your naked body out there in this, in this world that we live <laughs> in today and, and then hold the opinions that you have. And I think you do it and, and you're able to do it because you have such a loving opinion in the right way about yourself. So, um, just a few quick, just a few fun questions now, and then we'll, we'll, uh, we'll yeah. end this, but, uh, what's your Zodiac sign? <laughs> I'm an Aquarius. Ah, okay. I was always wondering what that was. So yeah, that's right. You said you were, well, when's your birthday in February? Early February? Yep, February 7th. That's yep. right. You're not mm -hmm. a uh, Pisces. You are an Aquarius. Uh, yeah, I'm an Aquarius to a T. <laughs> any celebrity crushes um, growing <laughs> up or currently? Um, I mean, when I was young, it was always the superficial crushes, always like, crushing on the hottest actor or, you know, like Brad Pitt or, I mean, even Ryan Reynolds. Um, but nowadays my crushes are more on the intellectual level. Like I have a weird thing for Hamilton Morris. <laughs> well, I think um, he makes two of us. <laughs> rightfully so. Right. Um, uh, let's see here. Jason Silva is really incredible. I mean, hell, even Joe Rogan on some weird plane is attractive to me. Um, <laughs> I, you know, like the, the kind of content that people are putting out there influences me and my, my ability to really think they're attractive, uh, just as insanely influenced by, the kind of stuff that they're putting out into this world. And I'd say people like Jason Silva, Hamilton Morris, Joe Rogan, they're all putting out content to really help move this time and space to maybe a much better direction. I totally agree there. Um, and any nicknames as a kid? <laughs> um, well, people started calling me uh, probably in my high school years, people call me Hannah Montana because of Hannah Montana, the Miley Cyrus character from Disney Channel. <laughs> hmm. No idea, huh? No, I know. I know who Hannah. I know who she is. <laughs> what I'm trying to realize with the the Skype is, I, if I talk over you, it like kind of like disrupts your stream of like consciousness and talk. So I try not to. I try to let people. What I'm learning with Skype is you have to let people finish fully. Uh, okay. Okay, next question. Favorite podcasts? 
Oh, great. Um, favorite podcast would definitely be Joe Rogan's podcast. Um, I also enjoy Aubrey Marcus's podcast, Lewis Howes. Uh, let's see here. Oh, Tom Bilyeu, if that's correct way to pronounce his name. His podcast is really well done. And then Shaleen Johnson is a woman who I have um, trusted throughout my personal development career and becoming a better person. Um, she has a lot of incredible stuff out there for women and men alike for becoming a better human being. So she would be somebody to really uh, look into. I will look into those. I've never heard of basically all those except for obviously Joe Rogan. And I think some nice. of mine mine are obviously Joe Rogan. Um, funny enough, Penn Sunday School, Penn Gillette of Penn and Teller. I like his podcast a lot. Um, the Ram Dass one, which is basically just his old uh, talks basically played over with a little bit of narration at the beginning from the host. Uh, and another one I really like, and I encourage people to check this one out, it's called The Lifestylist Podcast with Luke Story. And this guy is basically a mega biohacker. And he's like obsessed with biohacking everything um, to the point where, like, I listened to the one about electromagnetic frequencies and microwaves and cell phone signals. And it really, like, I wanted to build a Faraday cage around my bed. Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't know if, it, if it's actually healthy to listen to him because it can get your paranoid mind going in a direction. And uh, do you have any favorite quotes? <laughs> Oh, Lord. Um, <clears throat> there is one by Timothy Leary. It's about finding the others. Oh, I know that one. That yeah. one. Yeah, that one really resonates with me. I couldn't even begin to quote the whole thing because it's very long, but it's, I, I really resonate with it. Excellent. I think uh, one of my favorite ones recently was an Einstein quote when I was trying to figure out how I was going to, like, was marijuana serving me? Should I stop smoking marijuana? Basically, this kept coming to me, which was, you're not going to solve a problem from the same level of consciousness that created it. Mm. And I'm like, well, yep. duh, I'm not going to uh, solve smoking weed by smoking weed. So just, you know, it, it, right. I, I kept getting that quote synchronistically about five or six times in the span of a week. And I'm like, hmm, from all different directions. So I'm like, the universe is trying to tell me something here. I should listen. And uh, I think that's it. So I appreciate your time. You are an amazing person. I always enjoy seeing your content. It's always uplifting. Thank you for everything that you do. Is there anything that you have that you're working on that you wanted to plug um, before we go? Uh, well, first and foremost, thank you so much, Garrett. I really appreciate this opportunity. It's been incredible to see you and everything that you're doing for yourself to become a better human being. And I know that you've gotten some guff and you've had people unfollow you, but just know that you are doing what's best for you and you are doing, you're doing the work. You're doing shit that people are afraid to do. And the people who have lashed out to you are only lashing out because they themselves see a projection. They see that they should also be working on themselves and it scares the shit out of people when they see that. So, you know, kudos to you for, using your platform to share your truth, especially when your platform relies on a lot of people who smoke pot and really enjoy psychedelics. So good on you for being so, you know, so sure about yourself in this path that you're on. So thank you for being you. Um, 
But yeah, if people are interested, I'm working, you know, I got my CBD uh, through Sisters of the Valley. You can reach out to me for that. And I'm also going to start putting out um, different homeopathic meds. So like um, I will be creating my own elderberry syrup and selling that. I'm already producing that and now I just got to bottle it up and sell it. I'm going to be making things like uh, fire cider, uh, golden milk tea, and a bunch of other hippie sounding stuff. So if you want to know any more information about that, that's on my Facebook and my Instagram. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for the kind words. Everybody, please follow Kelly uh, at Instagram, Kelly underscore Hanner, H-A-N-N-E-R. Um, find her on Facebook, YouTube. Her website is kellymhanner.com. Look out for her herbal organic products coming out soon, Sisters of the Valley CBD. If you are in the cannabis industry, check out the NorCal Trim Trap. Uh, I appreciate you again so much. God bless you. Um, having have an amazing rest of your weekend. weekend. Uh, thanks again to Capital Floats in Sacramento. Uh, you know, it was sponsored by Capital Floats. It's located in Sacramento, California. Check them out. Um, they've got all the information online at capitalfloats.com. Thanks again, guys. And uh, everyone have a great night. God bless.